The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. There's a question of some of the permanent market shifts that will occur following this pandemic. A lot of people have been trying to understand how the world as we know it will change. Joe Nocera, longtime columnist at the New York Times, a columnist now for Bloomberg Opinion, who I deeply respect and always appreciate, uh, wrote a fantastic column. I highly recommend it. Pandemic could end shareholder supremacy for good. Talking about how a shift in the priorities of executives could change the way uh, companies are viewed in the world to come. Joe Nocera joins us now. Joe, can you talk a little bit about what the main idea here is behind your column? Yeah, I, I, um, my basic view is that just as we people in isolation or wherever have become nicer to each other, more generous to each other, much the same thing is happening in corporate America, um, where executives and top executives are caring a lot more for their employees uh, than they have in the past. Um, you know, furloughs instead of layoffs, where people get to keep uh, health care, uh, really trying to keep people on the payroll, even though they don't have that much work to do. The, you know, free coronavirus testing, um, and, and on and on and on. And, and you see this over and over and over. You, you see it in, in the quarterly conference calls now. You see it in so many companies trying to do something to, uh, to stem this virus, even if, even if their business has nothing to do with medicine or health care. Um, and it just made me think, boy, you know, this could signal a shift that would be good for the country and good for employees and, 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 you know, maybe even good for the stock, ultimately. It's interesting, Joe. I guess one of the key questions uh, is, can this last or is this just simply a function of the time we're in? Well, that's what we don't know. And I certainly didn't um, uh, suggest that this was automatically going to happen or this was a guarantee. It's obviously not a guarantee. Um, it, it's a little wishful thinking on my part. I'm hopeful that this could happen. You know, one of the things you, you, you've seen in America over time is that you have seen these shifts in corporate values over time. In, in, in the column that I wrote, I talk a lot about um, the post-World War II era where companies consciously hired more workers than they needed, knowing that that was important to prevent a new depression uh, and also to create kind of a virtuous cycle where, you know, workers uh, made products, other workers bought them, you know, and, and, and you expanded the economy. Uh, then you got into the, the, the era of uh, shareholder value, which really started with the bull market of the 1980s, and you had a very different um, – uh, you had people like Chainsaw Al Dunlap who bragged about all the people he, he, he fired, you know. And um, 
Get Gordon and I Gecko. I think we are ready. I think we're, as a culture, I think we're ready for something different. People are tired of the shareholder value stuff and, and the damage it does to employees and consumers and, 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 and the country at large. Yeah, Joe, that sounds wonderful. And, uh, and I, would, I would think that probably people would feel very happy if that were the case. I'm looking right now, Bank of America shares, they've gotten killed. And Bank of America was com- one company you highlighted as, as trying to do the right thing and promising no layoffs and, and doing a host of other issues to try to forestall some of the, uh, some of the pain throughout corporate and, and Main Street America. Do you think that shareholders are going to get on board here and basically end up uh, sort of rewarding companies that do take the angle that you're looking at? Or are they going to just say, look, at the bottom line, you're not going to make as much money for me. Well, there's going to be a giant reset in the market. I mean, there's going to be an enormous reset. And, 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 and yeah, Bank of America shares are down in part because its revenues were down like 45 percent. Um, you know, I, I, I think that I basically think that we could get to a point where companies basically say, you know, dear Wall Street, we're doing our best, but we've got a lot of other things to worry about. And we want you to have a seat at the table, but you're not the only seat. And Wall Street is going to have to, if enough companies say that, Wall Street will have to accept it. If they don't, you know, then, then we're back to where we were. Yeah, Joe, it's interesting. There, as you well know, there's a movement within particularly institutional investing, ESG, environmental, sustainability, and governance. So even institutional shareholders are, you know, have been paying more and more attention to things other than the bottom line. So perhaps this just could be, you know, a further catalyst uh, towards that and maybe you know, make ESG perhaps even more vibrant. Right. And then you have the whole thing with the business roundtable last year, um, you know, changing its uh, uh, motto or, or, or creed or whatever you want to call it um, to be more uh, employer and consumer friendly and not as, as focused on shareholders. Um, you know, a lot of people thought that was um, this PR, an exercise in PR. But if you have some movement and then all of a sudden you have this coronavirus that really changes the way people think, maybe it can last. I'm not saying it will. I'm saying I hope it does. I, at least and I join you in that hope, Joe. We'll see. But I, th- I, I agree. It seems like something profound uh, is happening around the world as it relates to this coronavirus. And there'll be lots oh. of implications longer term. And we'll see if that applies to corporate America as well. Joe Nasser, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. You can read all of Joe's excellent opinion pieces as well as all of the other work from Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or yeah. OPIN go on the terminal. They do excellent work. So there's a conundrum right now, Paul, and I keep using that word because it's very hard to understand the market right now. It's hard to understand the rally that's recouped all the gains, all the losses, rather, at least when you look at the top 100 NASDAQ shares. Is it time to get in? And are we pricing in now the other side of this pandemic and the related recession? Or are people getting ahead of themselves? And really, there's no one better to talk to than Chris Heisey, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank, as he talks with clients all day long about where they're, what they're feeling and their allocations. Chris, come on in. And when we take a look at the rally that we've seen over the past few weeks, are people viewing this? Is a dead cat bounce, or are they viewing this as the true signs of, of sort of a shift in mood, at least on the part of equity buyers? Yeah, I think uh, the, the, the quick answer to that is when you're seeing volatility decline by 50% from the record levels of 80 plus that we saw, which was indicating 
at least for equities, a 5 to 6% swing daily uh, back, you know, uh, during the, the throes of March, now get into the mid-30s, which is indicating, you know, below a 2% daily swing. What that does is for the long-term uh, investor, it, it provides comfort that, um, forget the fact that whether or not you're going to retest lows, it just provides comfort that there is a little bit more uh, assurity that we're going to get to the other side. Like in March, people didn't think we were going to get to the other side at all. So now you've got a little bit of comfort level on the long-term investor. But the short-term investor, and you guys have all seen this, uh, the positioning in the marketplace is still very, very bearish. And, and if, you're, if you're someone who thinks about quarter to quarter, uh, whether you're a hedge fund or an institutional investor, uh, what, what they're still very nervous about is this proverbial, quote-unquote, need to test the lows. And, and that's a statement that most people use because that's what's happened in history. But quite frankly, this episode, this three-pronged crisis, health, financial, and economic, that we're still going through, uh, is, is, is unlike anything in history. Uh, the speed of the decline is being matched by what we call the, uh, the speed of the exhale rebound. So, Chris, is this just a, a rebound within a longer bear market, or do you think that once we do get to the other side of this, and quite frankly, I'm not sure, I don't have great confidence that it's going to be, you know, shorter. It just feels, all the information I hear from the officials is that it could be longer than people think. But do you think once we do get to the other side that this is a market that can still work higher? Yes, yes. There's a, there's a few reasons for that. In the short term, it was about liquidity. We, we got through that. Now, now we call the second phase the buffer or the bridge, and that is, that is where the fiscal stimulus is simply designed to, to um, stop the abyss or at least cover the abyss that we're all going through in the second quarter and potentially part of the third. So um, investors are looking at the other side as a lot longer than the abyss. So that was stage one. And then stage three, which is next year, is a true economic recovery. And then stage four, or phase four, would be at the end of 2021, where you have a pent-up demand cycle. Now, it's hard to see that now, but when you look at income data, in terms of the number of claims, what these programs are designed to do is fill that unemployment claim gap. So even though you're, you're likely to see unemployment go way up, I mean, that's pretty obvious, People are getting that extra payment. So when you come out on the other side, consumer spending could actually go back to where it was, even though consumers will still be tentative. Chris, when we look at what has led some of the rebound recently, it's really been big tech. And I've been really struck by the NASDAQ outperformance uh, with the top 100 names outperforming the Dow the most in decades. I'm trying to understand whether big tech will continue to be the leadership going forward or whether perhaps people have hidden out too much in these as sort of the havens of this cycle. And uh, these are expected to underperform in the near term. Uh, great point, Lisa. And I think the knee-jerk reaction on a lot of part of uh, analysts, the analyst community, is going to be, hey, some of these companies are getting to, to multiples that are simply too high. What many analysts are not factoring in on a forward 12, 24, even 36-month basis is many of these companies are now being, being um, their value creators, their growth creators, and actually they happen to dominate the index. So if you get passive investment flows coming back in, they filter down into these names. They also happen to be the names that are breaking through the COVID-19 uh, pressure 
And they also happen to be the names that are creating the greatest free cash flow with yields where they're at in fixed income land. Free cash flow yield is, is extremely attractive in equity land. So it's kind of a three-pronged benefit for these companies, which is why we fully expect many of them, particularly in tech and healthcare, uh, should go to, to multiples that they haven't experienced in quite a long period of time. Okay, Chris, so we've got some stability back in the marketplace. Is there enough stability in the marketplace to even think about emerging markets, an area that's just been uh, really, really crushed? Unfortunately, no. We just downgraded emerging markets on that little bit of a bounce that we had a couple of weeks ago. The downgrade uh, to underweight from neutral uh, and then took those proceeds and, and moved it into U.S. large caps. And the whole reason was is because of the extreme dollar liabilities, and until the dollar goes through a very significant weak cycle, those dollar liabilities unfortunately can pressure emerging markets at the same time that many of them have less than, than high-quality healthcare systems. So if you put that out there, the risk-reward is, is still on a relative basis uh, much less than, than the developed markets, um, and specifically the U.S. Is there any asset that you just would not own right now? Well, I think on the real estate side, it's, it's very difficult to, to suggest that um, coming out to the other side that things will be normal. And, and we're not significantly bearish on real estate, commercial real estate in general, but it's on the watch list, and it's on the watch list for obvious reasons. What does corporate life look like um, for the foreseeable future, even when we get to the other side? And we have this, this phrase we call the new frontier, and the new frontier uh, is simply taking behaviors that we're all learning right now while we're we are during the shutdown. What type of behaviors that we're exhibiting now stands the test of time and continues even if there's vaccines? And that hits at the heart of what real estate may be pressured by, which is telecommuting, more telecommuting, less uh, need for office space than before, e-everything, e-learning, e-education, uh, virtualization, digitalization, things like that. Right. Um, you know, and less urbanization, quite frankly. So those are all things we're going through right now. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, your commentary as always. Chris Heise, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
One of the most fascinating aspects to consider about this coronavirus is how it's going to impact consumers longer term. Will consumer trends be changing materially? To get some thoughts on that, we're really fortunate to welcome Mark Douglas. He's the chief executive officer of marketing firm Steelhouse based in Los Angeles. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Again, it just seems like everybody's lives has been turned upside down with quarantining and you just can't do any of the things that uh, you used to do back pre-crisis. What what have you observed about consumer behavior over the last, you know, call it four weeks? Yeah, um, good morning. So things have actually changed quite a bit. There's kind of a what what we think of as a consumer journey that's going on. And the way we're seeing this is um, my company, Steelhouse, we're collecting data on about a billion dollars a week in consumer spending. So the first week is what you would expect. Everyone stocked up. And so, you know, groceries, um, all those kinds of things really skyrocketed. Probably the most interesting thing is um, about 14% more consumers or 202% more um, alcohol and wine the first week. So it kind of shows you how people are coping. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's essential. uh, Exactly. But the um, second week, um, what sort of happened is everyone, um, fitness grew by 198% week over week. So, you know, almost tripling a money spent on fitness equipment, um, fitness at home, um, those kind of trends. Um, the other thing that started to happen in the second week is that other um, kind of what you would think of like business service, people started building out their home offices, those kinds of things. By the third and the fourth week, what has happened is there's kind of a new consumer that's developed, what we're calling, calling this COVID super consumer, and they are buying anything on sale furniture, um, luxury goods, um, just just like um, home, they're buying fishing equipment, golf clubs, just anything that's on sale. And, and you know, so this um, body of consumers that feel very secure financially, apparently, are, are like shopping like we've never seen before. We kind of say now, like every day is Black Friday for the consumers that can afford it. Wow, I didn't expect that. Um, so interesting. Is there any sense, Tim, I mean, uh, Mark, as you look forward here, um, that you think some of these behavior changes might be more permanent? I'm thinking restaurants. Will people go out to restaurants as much as they used to? And I'm sure the cruise industry is trying to figure out, will people ever come back on our cruise ships? And will people get into airplanes again? Is there any thought on that? Um, yeah, a bit. So we work with a lot of travel industry customers, and they, all of them, literally 100%, are now spending $0 on marketing, at least um, the ones we work with, and we work with a bunch of big ones. But we're also in conversations with them, and they are very eager to start marketing again as we start to come out of this crisis. So I think the travel industry is going to be pretty aggressive in trying to get those early consumers to start um, traveling again. I think restaurants, and this is a bit more my personal opinion, not so much based on the data. Um, there was a trend, at least in LA and New York, to the concept of ghost kitchens, where restaurants don't have a storefront anymore. And um, and there's a um, startup founded by the um, founder of Uber, who, who's got one of the leading ghost kitchen companies. I think that is, I'm betting, I actually was talking to someone yesterday, that that is going to take off. That restaurants or a lot of restaurants can become at home only, delivery only. Yeah, as a I permanent think, trend. Yeah, I think people are getting, you know, maybe getting good, you know, the 
result of this, maybe get more comfortable, you know, ordering uh, from uh, and getting it d- delivered. Um, how about retailers? I mean, that's another industry that had been challenged going into the crisis. We know that uh, stores have been closing and more and more shopping's going online. And I guess it seems reasonable to assume that that trend towards online shopping will just accelerate, I guess, to the benefit of Jeff Bezos. Yeah, absolutely. The, and, and we're seeing in our data, so, you know, the first week, you know, you had all of these categories that declined, and we're seeing that decline lessen each week. So, so consumers who, who are in good shape financially um, are buying, and the retailers are, you know, they're just shifting their, their, their focus there. We have one customer that has 900 stores. None of them are open, and they are now spending pretty aggressively um, towards e-commerce, result, um, e-commerce sales and getting good results from that. And I think consumers um, are there. Probably one category that suffered the most is, is um, apparel, basically clothing. I mean, there's not much, no, no one's really going out. There's not much reason to buy apparel, but we even seeing um, an increase in the apparel category in the fourth week since the, we, we consider the crisis started March 13th, the day after the NBA stopped and traveled from Europe. And so, you know, we're at the end of the fourth week right now, and we're seeing even apparel has picked up um, and, and clothing, things that are a little harder to buy online, but consumers are still starting to get active in that category. Interesting. Very interesting. It'd be interesting to see, Mark, how this plays out longer term. We'll have you back to kind of, as we get through this pandemic, to kind of see how the consumer is reacting uh, and, uh, you know, we'll get some more details. Mark Douglas, CEO of Steelhouse. It's a media consulting firm and and spending a lot of time with consumer products companies and consumer facing companies, getting a sense of, uh, you know, how the consumer is changing and uh, clearly consumer behavior is changing dramatically uh, during this lockdown. The question is how permanent will it be? Uh, Looking at the markets right here, just get you a quick data check. We still have green on the screen, still holding on uh, to those gains, although they are giving, we are off the highs in the markets. Looking at the S&P right here, up 38 points, 28.37 on the S&P. The Dow's up, let's call it even 350 points. That puts it at 23,880 right there on the Dow. And the Nasdaq up 39 points, 85.71 on the Dow. Oil still negative, still under $20 a barrel. Just incredible supply demand dynamics here, pushing oil to just tremendous lows. We'll bring it all more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Joe Mysek, who covers all things municipal bonds for Bloomberg News, joins us. Joe, I'm so glad you're here because I saw an interesting article on the Bloomberg about mass transit. I don't know about, I'm sure I'm like most people here in the metro area. I haven't been on a New Jersey transit train in a month. I haven't been on a subway in a month. That's got to be a big, big revenue issue for some of these uh, issuers. Talk to us about what's going on in mass transit in the municipal bond market. Mr. Sweeney. Nice to speak to you again. Well, as you point out, uh, with the lockdowns, with the shutdowns in so many of the uh, large cities across the U.S., uh, the ridership has evaporated. So, you know, it depends, you know, which city you're looking at, but you could see ridership off 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 percent because uh, so many people are just not using it anymore. Schools are shut. Uh, a lot of businesses are closed. Or, as you and I are doing, people working from home. Uh, so it's uh, that has a real impact on the fare box. Now, most places don't make uh, 
you know, their entire uh, amount they need from the fare box because there's, you know, always in, in mass transit, there's so much dead time. Um, but that's having a real impact. And certainly we've heard from Pat Foy on several occasions, you know, head of the MTA in New York here, and uh, he's uh, made his, uh, uh, you know, dissatisfaction or, uh, uh, you know, a feeling of, of uh of lacking money, uh, known to the federal government on several occasions. Yeah, so Joe, you know, one of the, you think about transportation, initially we thought about the airlines, of course they're getting crushed, they're getting some significant aid from the government, but, you know, the airlines before the crisis had a great run here, a great decade of profitability and cash flow, but most mass transit systems kind of went into this crisis already under pressure. Well, you know, of course, they uh, they were actually some of them were losing ridership, and one of the reasons was alternative methods of going in, meaning you know people were biking in, sometimes people were taking Uber and Lyft in, and uh, uh, even working from home. So I remember, wow, we talked about this last summer. Moody's came out with a report. Uh, on this very subject about how there were a lot of different, uh, you know, alternatives that were eating into mass transit's uh, ridership. And of course, this, you know, is, you know, tips us over the edge here. It's interesting. Um, thinking about this, the shutdown of work at home, I mean, that I'm thinking about the states as well. Um, California, I saw in the, uh, story on the story on the Bloomberg, California faces a budget shortfall that could top $35 billion dollars. How are the you know what's the feeling in Miss Bond land about how some of these states and local municipalities deal with this crisis? Well, you know, there's always a little bit of the wait and see attitude. You don't want to you know hit the panic button uh, immediately. Plus, the federal government is throwing a lot of money at the situation between um, you know the, the the money that Congress put aside that $2.2 trillion relief package, that's going to help out. And then you have the Federal Reserve with $500 billion borrow apparently being just the first, uh, the first step of that sort of rescue package. Uh, but yeah, they're, uh, you know, you've, you've shut down, uh, I guess, 30% of the economy, they say. And for some states, that's going to have a much bigger impact than others. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's people are they're sort of they're shocked, but they're not surprised. Wow, interesting. We'll have to see the uh, the federal government come to uh, the rescue. And there's a lot of states that are hit worse than others. I'm thinking some of the bigger states like New York, uh, like California. Uh, Joe Mysek, thanks so much for joining us uh, on this Friday. Stay safe working uh, from home, and we will chat with you soon. Joe Mysek, he's a municipal bond editor for Bloomberg Briefs. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.